Welcome to A History of Financial Markets. This is Season 1, Episode 3. I am Ryan Henderson. I'm here with Brett Schaefer. Uh, and if you've been listening to the two previous episodes, we're going to break from the timeline on this one to talk about the largest enterprises of the decade because it's important to understand their influence uh, that the companies and the executives had because of how they fit into the period that's upcoming, which is 1906 to 1908. But these were three giant companies, and it was Standard Oil, J.P. Morgan, and U.S. Steel, and they also had very important leaders as well. So why don't we start with Standard Oil? How did this giant come to be uh, and maybe talk about what it really was? Yeah, so Standard Oil is the poster child of the antitrust era. They're founded by John Rockefeller, and you kind of knew that they were the largest company of the day. They really dominated the oil space. Um, I, I don't think they described it as a space back then. Maybe it was more of like the oil industry. Uh, but yeah, it was founded in 1863 when Rockefeller, and this is John D. Rockefeller, uh, joined Maurice Clark and Samuel Andrews to start an oil refining business in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, in 1865, he bought out Clark. Uh, so Maurice Clark, you know, one of the costliest mistakes of the business history or probably of all time. Could have been a rich man if he, if he kept his stake. But then in 1870, he brought on Henry, Henry M. Flagler as a third partner. He was very consequential to the growth there. He actually, I'm reading a book about the Florida housing boom right now. He was a big character in the early 20th century for the Florida housing boom, like kind of developing that state, turning it from a swamp into oh. the retirement, basically, state that we have yeah. today. Uh, but in 1870, they were already the largest oil refinery in Cleveland, and they incorporated as the Standard Oil Company. But by 1880, only a decade later, they controlled over 90% of all the oil produced in the United States. So great run there. And by 1882, all affiliated companies in the producing, refining, and marketing of oil were combined into the Standard Oil Trust. Now, this had nine trustees, including Rockefeller. And through these owner, the ownership of this trust, or the nine people that owned it, or the families, did quite well over the next decades. So why turn it into a trust? This allowed them to divide, merge, and create all these corporations however they saw fit. They wanted to purposely make it complex because it made it impervious to public investigations and understanding. They weren't doing anything necessarily illegal or avoiding stuff for propagating a fraud. It was obviously a real company, but they didn't want people investigating their books kind of, or, or how they made money. The WeWork money. approach. Yeah, except they were actually a real business model. Uh, but yeah, so the uh, muckraker um, writer, Ida, Ida Tarbell, wrote, and she might have been a little bit biased against them, but... She was still doing some good work trying to investigate uh, Standard Oil. She said you could argue ex its existence from its effects because it was obviously affecting the United States econ economy, but you cannot really prove its existence. So it was super secretive wow. compared to a company today. Yeah, interesting. It's where the 90% of U.S. oil is, when you talk about the oil industry, it was really just centered in one company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that. Their roll-up of the oil industry, if you want to call that, was amazing. And by 1899, all the assets were transferred to a New Jersey holding company and renamed Standard Oil Company. Not, still, still not creative with the names. Um, every name we come about, I mean, J.P. Morgan, well, no, it's not even creative too because it's just a guy's name. It was either someone's name or just well, yeah, the type of product they sell. It would have been hard to sell Uber. 
yeah. on those exchanges. They need, you know, people don't have the financials, so That's the name <laughs> needs to describe the uh, actual the operations. All right, yeah. And then they were so big that in 1906, the government actually started suing the company under the Sherman Antitrust Act. And by 1911, which is a little past here, but we'll probably get to this in a future episode, the company was actually ordered to divest itself of all of its holdings. So, so 33 companies in all. This included modern companies like Chevron, Exxon, Mobile. Now Exxon and Mobile are merged, and there are actually rumors that Chevron is going to merge with ExxonMobil, so Standard Oil is basically back. And there's also Texaco. These are all descendants of this conglomerate and other ones. So you can really see how the oil industry was dominated by one player, and they really crushed it. Um, how did they achieve so much power? First, they horizontally integrated across the oil refining industry. So that's what they worked relentlessly to do. And then they vertically integrated through partnerships and buying up all the supply chain. Hmm. Very smart. So Standard Oil, they would buy out competitors and then shut down the ones who were bad businesses and then keep the ones who were killing it in the crib, uh, as they say, for the startup companies for, you know, like big tech and stuff. Yeah. That's kind of what Standard Oil employed. Um, it's just with a different name. And then they would also get hefty discounts from railroads and what other oil companies were calling collusion. So, for example, in 1868... Lakeshore Railroad gave the firm a 71% discount if it met a carload minimum. So they were filling the trains like they were guaranteeing they could fill up the trains or whatever the each train car. Yeah. Uh, so they get a giant discount. Smart business strategy, but um, a little unfair, you know, you could say. Yeah, definitely. And what was uh, Rockefeller doing when he got, because uh, he was what golfing when he got the call that they oh oh they were going to get like up, broken up yeah uh, it might be an exaggerated tale but he was apparently golfing and the guy he was with he told him like buy it or whatever like don't sell your standard oil shares because no one knows how valuable this company actually is or something like that you know what I mean so yeah. once they realize all the assets that they have it's going to be worth a lot more than people think huh. uh, but then yeah to just kind of give a little. Uh, context into how well the company is doing. From 1882 to 1906, they had over $548 million in dividends paid on over $838 or $839 million in cumulative earnings. So back then, that's just a lot of money. Uh, the trustee families took their dividends and they invested in railroads, U.S. steel, as we'll get to later, and amalgamated copper. So they really tried to diversify and own all the different industries um, but it was spurred out by something called, you know, this company called Standard Oil. Rockefeller is considered the wealthiest person in American history. His peak net worth, basically all attributed to Standard Oil, was $418 billion in today's dollars. So I'll say that again, $418 billion um, in 1913. Uh, and that was 3% of U.S. GDP. Pretty good accomplishment. You could say he did uh, quite well for himself. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And then for reference, someone like Jeff Bezos, some of the tech giants out there right now are worth about 0.86% of GDP. So obviously slackers, but uh, I guess another note about Rockefeller, if we kind of want to know more about his life, he founded the University of Chicago. Uh, so that's a lasting institution that's still around from him. And then he never drank or smoked his entire life. Um, Must have just like, just like making money. Yeah. I, I feel like there's so many, I feel like you always hear about the wealthy Famous people never, uh, or, the, or the super wealthy, they're like, yeah, I never drank. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's, just, it's discouraging. Well, 
the thing is, I'm not. I mean, okay, yeah, some people might not be alcoholics, but to never touch it. Right. You know, you could be super religious, but I, they might be, um, you know, the story writers, the media journalists might be exaggerating just so for effect. Over the 24 year period, 1882 to 1906, they paid out almost 550 million in dividends. That mm-hmm. was in those dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not so, today's dollars. Okay. I mean, that's what, like almost 20 billion in dividends? It was a lot, yeah. And it was. And you got to think about, you know, real GDP grows well. So, you know, as a percentage of the economy, that's a huge portion. And as a percentage of their earnings, they didn't even make a billion dollars in cumulative earnings. During this time, the majority of earnings were always paid out as dividends. There wasn't this reinvestment stuff. There weren't share repurchases. There wasn't any of that stuff. Uh, Or at least if it was around um, and companies were reinvesting in their business, uh, they didn't they didn't do it as often. It was more about dividend. This is why the dividend yield of the stock market became a huge thing. Uh, it's why dividends, I mean, are still important to this day. It's kind of that lasting effect for how these companies operated. Okay, if Standard Oil was still around today, would it be broken up? Uh, I'd say 100, definitely. But, I mean, we're seeing the uh, re-sort mm. of consolidation, aren't we? Yeah, I guess this, yeah, we're kind of hitting peak consolidation now and the, that's for the market in general but we're seeing all chevron and exxon mobile trying to merge back together um i think if companies had 90 percent market share vertically and horizontally or i guess vertically it's kind of hard to describe it but you know if someone has 90 percent or more market share like if you look at someone I guess Google's probably the biggest example e-commerce. today. E-commerce, yeah. The, people compare Amazon to Standard Oil, which I think makes sense from in a way, but they're only what forty percent of e-commerce, so it's not even less forty. Well, it's de- it's decreasing. Yeah, their market share is decreasing. Um, yeah, it, I don't know if Amazon had ninety percent share of e-commerce, mm. they would definitely be broken up. But you know, so I I don't know. But the thing is, like Google has. Oh, what you may call it, 90% of search, right? Yeah. Something like that. And they're not broken up. So we'll see. We'll definitely see. All right. Is there, I mean, you kind of mentioned the companies that you think are like Standard Oil. Are there any other ones that kind of today remind you of the turn of the century Standard Oil? Yeah. So I'll explain why Amazon's feel similar first, and then I'll maybe, we can maybe discuss any other ones. But Amazon almost employed the same approach. So they horizontally integrated across e-commerce, right? They tried to just dominate that as fast as they could, building out, you know, leasing all these distribution products, different products, every single product they wanted. And it's not like, it's not a commodity from oil. It's like all these different products. So it's a little different in that sense, but then they vertically integrated. You could see them doing the logistics network right now, trying to take out UPS and FedEx basically. Mm -hmm. And they're also doing advertising, third-party marketplace. It's kind of trying to then vertically expand throughout the entire, you know, supply chain interesting so i think it's very similar uh but yeah i, I don't know what you kind of got to look at it what's the oil of today and it's probably the internet so again who is providing the back who's powering the internet at least in today's age that's probably microsoft with azure amazon with aws again and then google, google with google yeah. cloud i'd say those are very similar as well yeah i mean google's the only one that dominates its specific uh, search right field the way that oil did 
Yeah, or Standard and, Oil did. Yeah, and Facebook's close, but there, you know, some other companies are eating away at that market share. It's probably what 75, 80%. It's not at 90. I mean, but it's still very classi- dominant. What do you classify as their field? Social networks. Yeah. I want to say it's I don't I, I mean, I'm sure there's numbers on it, but I want to say 90% goes to Facebook between yeah, social networks. But it's still it's still majority. Okay, um, let's talk J.P. Morgan. Do you want to describe yeah, uh, so sort of how they came to be? They're still around today, so they're still kicking. Uh, maybe they're they one are. of the permanent companies that we kind of try to, at least the question always comes up, but like if the company was around before 1900, will it be around after 2100? Uh, we'll see with J.P. Morgan. We'll see if they can keep kicking for ne- another century. But yeah, they're still around today. Uh, they started in 1799, actually, with the formation of what was called the Manhattan Company, and its goal was to plot supply pure and wholesome drinking water to the city. So they have nice good start, but they've evolved since then. It was actually founded by Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. They were some of the founders. It's uh, a, a stakeholder-friendly business. Very stakeholder-friendly. Um, and then it Still eight, carries those roots to it today. To this day, yes, when they come up with different security tranches or whatever and derivative <laughs> intru- instruments, power to the people. Uh, but yeah, in 1817, the Bank of Manhattan, they funded the Erie Canal. And in 1863, the first national Bank of Chicago opened for business under the new National Banking Act, and J.P. Morgan and Chase, which is the company that's around today, uh, acts under this number eight charter now. Uh, let's see, in 1871, Drexel Morgan and Company was a private banking house in New York City, and that was founded then. Um, the company was known for backing railroads, and then in 1895, the firm was renamed J.P. Morgan and Company with J.P. Morgan the person, the head of the four major divisions. So. So was this Drexel is kind of how they made Morgan? their buck. I think Drexel was another person. So it was kind of the two of them that started it, and then J.P. Morgan kind of he kind of just took it, things. Guessing? Yeah, I don't know the exact history of that. So okay. whatever happened over those next decades um, in 1901, he combined or J.P. Morgan the company combined 15 companies to build U.S. Steel. We'll get to that next. Uh, but this is kind of their heyday around the early 20th century, right at the turn of the century. They're really dominant. They made their money backing railroads. So that's kind of how they became famous, and they were working with, you know, U.S. Steel, Andrew Carnegie, some other companies. Uh, by 1904, they helped free up 40 million dollars so the U.S. could purchase the land needed for the Panama Canal. Kind of an interesting story there. Um, and in 1907, the company and Mr. Morgan, quote, saved the banking system from the Panic of 1907. We'll get into that in the future episodes, as we keep saying, but. Yeah. Um, at one point, he owned, or they owned, about one-sixth of all railroad stocks in America. So that's a kind of an example of how they were, through financing these railroads, they helped to dominate that industry and kind of own, you know, the backbone of transportation then. Yeah. What? How do they end up with the ownership just through financing it? Just or, kind of putting I, the capital up front to, for people to build it? I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure the exact terms of the financing. All right. Um... Yeah, I guess discussion questions. Do you have anything else on J.P. Morgan? Mm, well, he was booked. At, he was supposed to be booked on the Titanic, but he decided to cancel. So good luck uh, from old J.P. Morgan. But he died right after that at age 75 on March 31st, 1913 in Rome, Italy. Uh, so if, J, if, if J.P. Morgan shareholders needed a good investing omen, it's that J.P. <laughs> Morgan himself canceled yeah. his trip on the titanic yeah for sure that's uh that's definitely the yeah that's my investment thesis right now for sure okay discussion question what 
are the odds? What odds would you give J.P. Morgan to be around f- until twenty one hundred? hundred years from now, yeah, basically the turn of the next century. Yeah, what's it going to take for them to disappear? If I had to bet, uh, I don't want to say anything crypto, ooh, but uh, the I'd say there's a really strong chance they're still around. Yeah, I'd say I don't know, eighty percent chance they're still around. Investment banking seems tough to disrupt commercial banking, where you're, you know, this isn't like consumer stuff that seems disrupted by these uh, internet banks, but commercial banking, you know, giving out bonds, or sorry, loaning bonds, all that type of stuff, it seems hard for someone to just come in and take that. Yeah. Um, who do you think was more influential, J.P. Morgan at the turn of the century or the Fed today? Uh, well, J.P. Morgan was probably more influential over a smaller industry because it was a tiny part of the U.S. economy. But now, but it was Fed, saving the market, too. Yeah. I mean, it, it acted that he acted and they acted as a private Fed almost in a, in a way, but yeah. it's a smaller thing. So it's, it's not as, I mean, yeah, some people across in the middle of the country might see some reverberations from this type of stuff in 1907, but only 1% of people actually hold, held shares yeah. in the stock market. So if you're talking about the influence on the banking system and the finance, financial markets, probably equal influence. But the Fed has more, you know, obviously it's a way bigger piece of the economic economic pie right now for the Fed. Do you have any other numbers on uh, stock returns for J.P. Morgan? For J.P. Morgan, no. That would actually be a good one to look up. Yeah, that's interesting. No one really touts how something like that has performed. I know. I mean, they're obviously... They're always around, but you never think about the actual returns. Yeah, I mean, they're worth... I would say since 1900, they've gotten bigger because they're worth... $200 $200 billion now. So yeah. definitely beat inflation for sure. Okay, we're going to hit a quick ad break and then we're going to talk U.S. Steel, which was sort of the big merger. So here you go. Welcome back. Uh, U.S. Steel is next. Do you want to describe what this uh, kind of came to be? Because it was not, it wasn't just one company all along. Yeah, so the U.S. Steel, there, there was Carnegie Steel that, uh, was kind of the big company around this, but we're not going to talk about the history of U.S. Steel. We're going to talk about the merger, which was on March 2nd, 1901. So J.P. Morgan financed U.S. Steel with Andrew Carnegie. He was the major shareholder where they had to you know, pay him out. But this was the giant industry consolidation. It would be kind of, it's hard to even talk, like there would be no companies that could even compare to this merger today. It would be like if e-commerce was wrapped into one. Kind of, kind of, but it's different because it's like a commodity. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be kind, uh, but oil's kind of similar to what you know. It's powering stuff, so it's kind of like the cloud. I I don't know. It it would be similar to maybe if the cloud was all one company, but it still feels a little different than that. I mean, is there a commodity out there that like some one company just totally dominates? Maybe, and that has coffee beans. It would have, but coffee beans aren't super. Uh, but it's not as influential. Yeah, mm, yeah, it's weird. It's a unique situation, but it, it was huge. I mean, this merger was just gigantic. It was capitalized at one point four billion dollars, which then was three three times the contemporary revenues of the government. So it combined Carnegie Steel, Federal Steel Company, National Steel Company. Like we said, I can't boring. Believe those were two different company names. <laughs> they the names were again so boring. But uh, 
they combined those companies for $492 million and uh, Andrew Carnegie actually got bought out. Um, rumors, you know, the way this got kicked off, there was rumors in 1900 that Andrew Carnegie wanted to get, to get out of the industry. He wanted to kind of cash out. And then in December 1900, there was a quote, legendary dinner attended by J.P. Morgan that occurred at the New York University Library. So if you're some, if you're like an NYU student or someone there, you can kind of go check out the library and say, uh, oh, this is where the big U.S. steel transaction went down. Um, during the dinner, Charles Schwab, who is not related to Charles Schwab, the, the brokerage firm right now, this is a totally different guy. He gave a speech setting forth the outline of the steel trust, where it's just, I just imagine again, like the, uh, you know, guys in suits, kind of fat, smoking cigars and talking about, you know, like smiling and stuff like we're just going to. Uh, we're just going to take like, over steel. We're just going to dominate steel and have a monopoly here, guys. What are you thinking? They're all like, you, let's yeah. do it. If you've ever seen the movie Trading Places, this just reminds me of that kind of library. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So he was Charles, Charles M. Schwab was the key figure in the formation of the company. In 1900, he became the president of the Carnegie Company, again, which is the biggest pre-U.S. steel steel company and then he approached Albert Gary who is founder of Federal Steel about this giant consolidation. So you might ask what did JP Morgan have to do with this because they had to buy out Andrew Carnegie for $492 million. So they had to help finance that to own some of the, you know, shares and the the worth of the company. Uh, so Schwab was named president but he actually resigned in 1903 to join Bethlehem Steel. According to the sources of the time, Gary and Schwab, there's too much alpha in one room, too many egos. And alpha is not market outperformance. That was like too many. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, they were uh, too big headed uh, and they kind of couldn't work under the same umbrella. Uh, but the key to the merge was Morgan's and Carnegie's interest. So Gary was Morgan's intermediary and then Schwab was Carnegie. So they kind of were, again, like the two. Uh, people that are actually meeting where J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie didn't want to meet face-to-face, you know, kind of that deal where they're like, oh, just send the guy, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people do that, but they do. Um, and then Gary again. So Albert Gary uh, was the dominant figure for U.S. Steel for the early years, and he was on chairman of the board until his death in 1927. So he kind of made it into the, you know, dominant company over the next few decades. And then he hosted what were called famous Gary Dinners, with all the major steel producers where they quote, came up with cooperative pricing, I'm doing air quotes there, which was literal collusion out in the open, um, which feels insane, but it was happening. And then in 1906, US Steel built a plant on the shores of Lake Michigan and had a town to go along with it. Thus, Gary, Indiana was born. So interesting tidbit there. Gary, Indiana, is that the, uh, I was gonna say, is that the famous town that, What's, is there something from there that I, I'm trying to bl- I th- maybe I'm drawing a blank on it Gary Indiana US Steel Mills I don't know it was named That's after it. Albert Gary okay alright well um, discussion questions then would US Steel be approved today uh, I would say hope no I don't think so yeah the way no it way. went about too it's just like it feels slimy I don't know yeah and are there any mergers that even compare to something like this I don't I'm not an expert on business history. If there are any and you're listening, please tell us. Uh, me and maybe like it could be some. I mean, you could say like if AT&T and Verizon merged, it'd be that big or something like that. I'm trying to think of companies that are big enough to even 
impact it, you know? It would have to be a bunch of smaller companies in some industry that had a meaningful impact on the economy. And I don't even know if that's there anymore because a lot of, you know, manufacturing has been outsourced. Maybe, oh, maybe it would be like if the automotive industry all merged into one, right? It could be something like that. Similar? Similar, but yeah, that's a product, not a commodity. It's supply chain. Yeah, it's of... lower on the supply chain, yeah. Okay. All right, well, I think that's going to do it. you have any other notes? Anything else? No, I mean, this this kind of broke from the timeline. When the first three episodes here were kind of setting things up, but it gets more dramatic in the next few episodes. So we're trying to, you know, set everything up here, but the story really gets cooking in the Panic of 1907. It's one of the best stories of financial, you know, of the financial history of the United States. Okay. All right. Thank you guys for listening to A History of Financial Markets. As always, if we got something wrong or if you have any questions or anything like that, find us on Twitter or uh, we'll put the we can put an email in the show notes or something like that. Uh, but next episode, we get into the events just prior to the panic of 1907. So kind of the buildup. So stay tuned for that. Am I missing any disclosures? No, no need to disclose anything. Okay. So. All right. Yep. See you guys next episode. Thank you. Mm-hmm.